This is from the True Dharma Eye. Bhav was blocking the eyes, ears, and mind. The main case. Dijang asked a monk from Bhavfu's monastery, How does your master teach the Buddha Dharma? The monk said, Once Master Bhavfu told the assembly, I cover your eyes to let you see what is not seen. I cover your ears to let you hear what is not heard. I restrain your mind to let you give up thinking. Dijang said to the monk, let me ask you, when I don't cover your eyes, what do you see? When I don't cover your ears, what do you hear? When I don't restrain your mind, what do you discern? Upon hearing these words, the monk had realization. The commentary. Bhavafu covers the monk's eyes, ears, and mind in order to reveal that which, is, which cannot be seen, heard, or perceived. What is revealed that cannot be seen, heard, or perceived? Dijang asked, when eyes, ears, and mind are not covered, what is perceived? One pushes down, the other lifts up. One stands on the summit of the great mountain and raises waves that encompass heaven and earth. The other descends to the depth of the great ocean and raises mud and sand. Do these two adepts speak of the same thing? Or is what they point at different? Is Balfour's covering the same as or different from Dijang not covering? Haven't you heard? If you intend to make a living on the road, you will have to travel by day, not by night. How do you travel by day? The verse. If they have an eye, I cover it up. If they don't have an eye, I uncover it. The jet black darkness emits light. Incredible. The whole universe is illuminated. So my plan was to give this talk last Sunday because it was before the official day of commemorating the life of MLK. But then Sunday, the weather had different ideas or different plans for us, so we couldn't get together. But I still wanted to talk about that because it is so relevant to us. I thought it would be good to take a little time to appreciate the transformation MLK was able to initiate through his perseverance, selfless actions. But also to take the opportunity to examine the root of discrimination as we experience in our own lives in these times. Martin Luther King lived in a time where racial discrimination was widely overt and acceptable by many people. Many who felt justified to disenfranchise other human beings, harbor feelings of hatred 
and commit horrific acts of violence against them without hesitation or remorse. You know, in these days, many of us look at those dark times of our history with disbelief, having difficulty comprehending how can human beings behave with each other in such ways. And, you know, we feel that we have come a long way since then. But when you think about it, it's only been 54 years since the march from Selma to Montgomery and 50 years since MLK was shot. And as much as we want to believe that we have radically changed since then, the reality of our times is telling a different story. On some level, it's true that as society, we have come a long way since then. And we have learned to be more acceptable, more aware of, our, of the destructive forces of our biases, become more tolerant of each other. But if we take the time to really look deeply at this issue, it's easy to see that while overtly things may have changed, our biases as society move to operate on the underground level and are still operating there in implicit ways and manifest explicitly. You know, but acts of discrimination are only symptoms to a disease that lies deep within us. So if we change the way we act, it doesn't mean we change at root level. It also doesn't mean that it sheds light on the root causes of such actions. And when we don't do that, often the disease will find another way to manifest. It's kind of like having a physical disease that manifests as a rash on our skin. Right? You could put some ointment on it and the rash will go away. And you think, well, since I don't see the rash, I'm good, I'm well. But does it work? Right? In reality, the disease, if it is a reaction of a disease or a way the disease manifests, the disease is suppressed for a little while and very soon will manifest and appear in different ways. And, and Martin Luther King knew that very well. One of his quotes, he said, everything that we see is a shadow cast by that which we cannot see. The hatred and discrimination that lies in the heart in our heart, manifest in words and actions. Suppressing words and actions do not address the hatred, the source of the hatred, the source of discrimination in the heart. And for us as practitioners, we have to be willing to look beyond what the eye can see and work on our tendencies at root level the underground, what is not seen, what is not heard. 
Now, we know, many of us know, that the current political climate is toxic, radically toxic. And that what's happening these days is actually fueling all discriminating tendencies. But then, of course, to hate those who express hatred or to discriminate against those who discriminate is only adding wood to the fire we are trying to extinguish. It doesn't matter who or what we hate. Right? This is just the, the way the disease manifests. But why do we hate? is more important than justifying who we hate. So here we are, 50, 50 years later, after MLK was shot for standing against racial discrimination, we find ourselves in times that on one level give rise to acceptance and equality, and on another level give rise to what he was working to expose and eradicate. It was just a couple of weeks ago, I was you know, reading news, and a congressman said during an interview, when did white nationalists and white supremacists become offensive language? You may know who that is. And, and this is a person, he's been congressman for a long time, he's a person that has been using this language for a very long time. It's not slip of the tongue. And it is acceptable. You know, the question, this is what he's asking here, that may be shocking for many of us, but for some reason now, his party is trying to shut him off and, you know, looking at the possibility of censoring him. Probably because equality seems to be a more valued currency for elections, for maintaining the seats that they want to hold on to. More so, I think, because they truly understand equality or feel it in their hearts. It's more because they stick the finger in the wind, realize it's better to look as if we're, we are working towards all one. So we'll do that now. I mean, maybe they will censor this guy, or maybe others too. But again, suppressing the symptom does not address the disease. So you can shut this guy off, not let him speak, not let him address things the way he's addressing. But look around, look at how else it manifests. What is nationalism? Why Brexit? Why America first? Why me first, then? you second, and then she will be third and he will be fourth. What are we protecting? 
What are we afraid of? If we want to address this disease, we need to get beyond the immediate interpretations that arise in us when we see, hear, smell, touch, taste, think. It means to get in touch with the, the way discrimination is born at the moment our senses come to contact with something or someone. When we hear something, what happens? Is it at that? Is it at the level of hearing? Is it at the level the eye is in contact with something or someone? Or is it the immediate interpretations of what I see, what I hear, what I smell, what I touch, what I think? And what happens if the senses are cut off? How can we see without an eye, hear without an ear, think without the mind? In this koan, Dijang asked a monk from Bhagavad's monastery, how does your master teach the Buddha Dharma? And the monk answered with an example from one of Master Balfour's talk, in which he said to his students, I cover your eyes to let you see what is not seen. Because I know what you see when you use your eyes. I know what you do with what you see when you use your eyes. I cover your ears to let you hear what is not heard. Because I know what you do with what you hear. And how you interpret that. I restrain your mind to let you give up thinking because I know how thinking traps you. I know what you do with your thoughts. What happens when it's all gone, deprived? How else do we interact with reality? All of it is taken for granted. Of course I know what I see. Of course I know what I hear. And therefore, specific certain thoughts will follow. And those are the thoughts I'm going to fuel, entertain, go with. That's a given. Right? But what we do is go before that. We go to before the assumptions are born and held on to, at that level, is there anything certain? Do we know what we see? Do we know black to be black and white to be white and that these are separate? Where, when does the separation show up? Well, to deprive the senses can be a very effective way to, to raise the great doubt and to initiate inner transformation. 
But how is Balfour doing that? By instructing his students to practice Zen correctly. By teaching them to not believe the passing thoughts and opinions that appear in their mind. By giving them a koan, move, to walk on. And supporting and encourage them at moments where the ground seems to be shaking under our butts. And we begin to realize that there is nothing upon which to rely. There is nothing upon which to rely. Which means, if I think I know what I'm looking at, I am relying on that. If I, know, if I think I know what I hear, then my thoughts are relying on that and follow that. But to go to a place before all this is born, when there is no ground, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. This is why in our Zaza and often we may be okay for a little bit, floating around, and then feel terrified and go right back to thinking about something. And it's part of the process. It's a natural part of the process. What we need to do is teach ourselves to be more and more comfortable being groundless, <clears throat> not knowing anything, being an idiot. Because that, well, that's what that means. On that level, it means being an idiot and being perfectly fine with that. So Bafu is, is giving those instructions, right, to his students so they can do what they need, so we can do what we need to do with our practice, so we can practice correctly. And he's guiding them to turn away from the automatic process of labeling, judging, quantifying through sight, sounds, and mental formations. And in a way, that's all he can do. That's all teachings or teachers can do. Guide us to do what we need to do. So do we do it? Do we do what the teachings are pointing at? Are we practicing it correctly? What is our relationship with our senses. <clears throat> In the fire sermon, the Buddha spoke about the senses being on fire with what is being seen. The eye is burning with the sights. The ear is burning with the sounds. The mind is burning with the thoughts. And he says, the eye is burning with size, the tongue is burning with flavors, the nose is burning with aromas, the body is burning with tactile sensations, and the mind is burning with thought formations. 
And in this sermon, he explained that at the moment our senses come in contact with reality, we are jailed or burned by the automatic way we interpret what we see or hear with our mind. And so to put out this fire, he urged his followers to learn to become less obsessed with their senses or with what we perceive through our senses. It's another way of saying that before we can expand our views, they can become more inclusive. We need to disengage from the discriminated consciousness that keeps us trapped in appeasing the small sphere of me and my imagined boundaries. What I, what I think I need to protect. Another of MLK quotes, he said, an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. That's expansion. Instead of being so concerned with me and my feelings, or being so sure that I know that what I see, hear, smell, touch, think is exactly what's going on. Because as long as I, I have this way of being or, or functioning this way, I'm unable to break through. I'm unable to include everybody and everything. I'm way too busy protecting something. and paralyzed by fear or by knowing that at the end of the day, what I'm protecting is bound to fall apart. That's not in question for anyone, I hope. Once a follower, a Brahmin follower, asked the Buddha to explain why do people fight with each other. And the Buddha said, it is because of attachment to views, adherence to views, fixation on views, addiction to views, obsession with views, holding firmly to views. And on another occasion, the Buddha was asked, why do people live with hate? And he said, Beings wish to live without hate, harming, hostility, or enmity. They wish to live in peace, yet they live in hate, harming one another, hostile, and as enemies. By what fetters are they bound that they live in such a way? That's the question. Why? Why do we act this way? The Buddha said, it is the bonds of envy and stinginess that bind beings so that although they wish to live without hate, hostility, or enmity, and to live in peace with one another, yet they live in hate, harming one another, hostile as, and as enemies. And it said that the questionnaire was delighted by the answer but wanted to go deeper, and so he asked further. But sir, 
What gives rise to envy and stinginess? What is their origin? How are they born? How do they arise? When they arise? And when they arise, what is present? And when they do not arise, what is absent? This guy's very thorough. <laughs> and the Buddha said, Envy and stinginess arise from liking and disliking. This is their origin. This is how they are born. That's how they arise. When these are present, they arise. When these are absent, they do not arise. Liking and disliking. But sir, what gives rise to liking and disliking? They arise from desire. He said. And what gives rise to desire? It arises from thinking. When the mind thinks about something, desire arises. When the mind thinks about nothing, desire does not arise. Remember Dogen's advice? To think non-thinking? But sir, he asked again, what gives rise to thinking? He would like to know that too, right? The Buddha said, thinking arises from elaborated perceptions and notions. When elaborated perceptions and notions are present, thinking arises. When elaborated perceptions and notions are absent, thinking does not arise. Elaborated perceptions and notions. And so the Buddha is, is going step by step from the appearance, from what is seen as her, and heard to what is not seen and not heard. Because this is the level in which we need to do the work. That's where it begins. And if we don't do that, it keeps appearing and reappearing in different ways. And he's saying that at the root of all afflictions and conflicts lie a perception of reality, which is no more than a personal interpretation created by the six gates of our perception, our senses. Remember to clearly see the five skandhas, right? To clearly see that the emptiness of the five skandhas. Thus, to relieve misfortune and pain. We chant that. To see the non-substantiation of our perceptions. Elaborate perceptions. And I think it's actually very important for us to understand the degree to which we are tethered to our perceptions and personal interpretations. It's not just I read it, we read it, we hear it, we flip off, we flip the switch off, and it's no longer happening. It's happening all the time. So before we can even address it, we have to recognize that those are the tendencies, those are the conditions or the conditionings that are operating within me. Even if I believe that I'm somewhat realized, practicing for a while, it's still there. 
it's still operating. And it is so strong in us that we're so conditioned that often what is real appears to be false and what is false appears to be real. I was working with a beginner on the mat uh, a while ago and this person, I was trying to make this person do something in a specific way and it's front rolling and, and, and this person said, but it feels a lot more natural to do it this way, not that way, to do it the way that this person was doing it. And I said, of course it feels more natural, but the fact that it feels natural doesn't mean it's true, it doesn't mean it's conducive, it doesn't mean it's the way you need to move. It's the way you think you need to move. It's the way you, th you think you need to think or function. But practice, any practice actually, practice is there to change that. Otherwise, why do we practice, right? If we know how to function and it's all good, why do we bother practicing anything? The point of practice or studying something is to change the way we do what we do. And it means that while we are working on changing it, the, the strong forces within us are going to try to pull us back to what is familiar. And to discriminate is familiar. To put up walls and to put up borders is familiar. This is why some people think that we should build a wall. Right? I build the wall. You're going to be over there, I'm going to be here. Now, I'm good. It feels natural, but what feels natural often is not what we need to be doing. That's a lot easier. A while ago, I think I actually quoted this a couple of years ago, I heard an interview on the radio with a co-founder of uh, a rich research center called the Perception Institute. And in that interview, at some point, this person talked about perceptions that arise out of implicit bias and perceptions that arise out of explicit bias. This person, I think her name was Alexis Johnson, she said, Ex explicit biases, she said, refers to the attitudes and beliefs we have about a person or group on a conscious level. Much of the time, these biases and their expression arise as a, the direct, as a direct result of a perceived threat. When people feel threatened, they are more likely to draw group boundaries, group boundaries, to distinguish themselves from others, hence building a wall. People are more likely to express explicit biases when they perceive an individual or a group to be a threat to their well-being. And it's not that difficult to convince people that other people are a threat to their well-being, as is happening now. Now she said, research has shown that white people are more likely to express anti-Muslim anti prejudice 
when they perceive national security to be at risk and express more negative attitude towards Asian Americans when they perceive an economic threat. When people perceive their biases to be valid, they are more likely to justify unfair treatment or even violence. Expressions of explicit bias, discrimination, hate speech, etc. occur as the result of deliberate thought. Elaborated thinking, as the Buddha said, which become deliberate if we take action based on that, if we believe it to be true. And then she said, implicit bias refers to thoughts and feelings that are implicit if we are unaware of them or mistaken them by nature or about their nature. We have a bias when rather than being neutral, we have a preference for or version two, a person or a group of people. Thus, we use the term implicit bias to describe when we have attitudes towards people or associate stereotypes with them without our conscious knowledge. We don't even know it's happening. A fairly commonplace example for this is seen in studies that show that white people will frequently associate criminality with black people without even realizing that they're doing so. And this is talking about all of us. Right? Because if I don't know that I'm doing that, maybe I am doing that. Maybe I have to stop and look deeply beyond what I know about myself. And this is another way to say that discriminating consciousness appears above the surface and under the surface. And that there are forces within us that can potentially take over and create harm. So we may be able to learn to recognize explicit discrimination and work on changing our responses, but what about implicit forces within us? How do we work with that which is under the surface, which is not seen, heard, or thought of? And that's the primary aspect of practice. Work with what you cannot see, hear, or think. And this Quran, Bhagavad says, I cover your eyes to let you see what is not seen. I cover your ears to let you hear what is not heard. I restrain your mind to let you give up thinking. And then Di Zhang said, when I do not cover your eyes, what do you see? When I do not cover your ears, what do you hear? When I do not restrain your mind, what do you discern? We get trapped when what we see and hear stirs up the mind. And it moves it in a way that creates harmful thoughts which of course lead to harmful speech and harmful actions. As in the saying, as soon as the mind moves, heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. 
As soon as it moves, divisions are born. And when divisions are born, discrimination is born. All that is automatic. So we need to watch the movement of the mind and get in touch with that. And what happens when we learn to not give so much weight to our thoughts and emotions through practice and just observe them as they come and go, as we do in our zazen. Learn to observe elaborated thinking, elaborate perception. Learn to observe and go no further. And what kind of effect does it have when we do learn to observe that and not go with it? What kind of effect does it have on the way we function, the way we interact with one another? You know, Sekida described that as, you know, absolute samadhi in zazen and then positive samadhi in everyday life to actualize the zazen, right? So we sit and we go into or we get in touch with all is one. No differentiation. And then from there, we move on to function within differentiation. From understanding no differentiation. Of course, one has many kinds. We don't look the same. We don't sound the same. Yet, two have no duality. Yamada Kun Describe this in a very simple way, but very powerful, by saying that the ruler has two kinds, two sides, sorry. One side of the ruler, there are lines, gradations. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm, I'm maybe at number two, I want to be at number 10, which is fine if you want to work towards that. But flip it every day. Again, Zazen, we flip the ruler to the other side in which there are no numbers. Every point of the ruler is the same. And on that side, how do we differentiate? You can't. Where do you find yourself? Or where do you find the other on that side? And then you go back to flipping it and you function. Oh yeah, I have to go from point A to point B. I gotta go work. I gotta deal with my boss again. Maybe he doesn't like me so much. Whatever. Then again, go back, flip it. No lines, no differentiation. And back to functioning within the lines. Within different appearances. Because that's how we have to practice. That's what practice is teaching. In the commentary, you know, Dada Roshi says at the end, <clears throat> he wrote the commentaries for this. Haven't you heard, if you intend to make a living on the road, you will have to travel by day, not by night. How do you travel by day? You, you have to travel within differentiation. 
because we don't look the same, and that's a good thing. There are many opinions out there, but so what? So you go back to looking at the night when all things are one, when all things appear as one blanket of darkness which unites everything. But don't expect to function there. From there, travel by day, function moment by moment. I'm going to end this with another quote from MLK. He said, We must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Very powerful, very much to the point. Right? Either we live together realizing that we are one, or we die together as fools missing the opportunity to realize it and function this way.